World Autism Awareness Day is held every year on April the 2nd. It is recognised by the United Nations members as a day to remember the rights of autistic individuals around the world. The United Nations General Assembly unanimously declared the day to advocate the need for persons with autism to be able to lead full and meaningful lives as an integral part of society. World Autism Awareness Day aims to put the spotlight on the hurdles that people with autism and others living with autism face every day. World Autism Day celebrates the unique talents of those with autism while putting a huge focus on the warm embrace and welcome that these skills deserve through community events around the globe. Let's work together to increase understanding and acceptance of people with autism, foster worldwide support and inspire a kinder, more inclusive world. So as Society Superheroes, we are very pleased to have two very special women in the studio today. I don't want to call them old colleagues and friends because old might sort of be a little bit of a, a diss on them, but certainly old in the sense of much experience. So first we have Sue who describes herself as not trained or prepared for autism. <laughs> she says she is a work in progress. Sue and Paul are the parents of a 24-year-old Kieran and a 22-year-old Heather. Sue started her career as a Zulu teacher at JP Boys and went on to work in adult training for an insurance company. After the birth of her daughter, Sue took a mornings-only job as a fundraiser for Kids Haven, one of my favorite places, as you know, Sue, and she's still there 20 years later and is considered to be one of the best fundraisers in the nonprofit sector. Sue's son, Kieran, is autistic, is autistic and throughout his life, Sue has been a pioneer in seeking solution for Kieran's healthcare, education and in ensuring that he is in a fulfilling and nurturing adult care program. With her is Dr, recently Dr, Dee Blackie, who transitioned from the corporate world to the world of child protection 10 years ago. In 2010, after seeing a picture of an abandoned child in a South African newspaper, Dee decided to take her 15 years of business experience and focus this on the world of child protection. Using her expertise in publishing, advertising, marketing and consumer insight and business and brand strategy. And having consulted to numerous South African and global brands, Dee facilitated the creation of the National Adoption Coalition in South Africa in 2011. She has developed Courage, and that's a program which I also work with and is a wonderful program, which aims at increasing awareness and understanding of child protection challenges in communities and to improve the gatekeeping function of child protection organizations across the, across the globe. And most recently, Dee has been awarded her PhD from WITS, and her research has focused on childhood learning disabilities and neurodevelopmental disorders, what she calls atypical minds. So welcome, ladies. Thank you. It's good to be Thanks. here. So, Sue, so we'll start with you. Um, you said you were thoroughly um, not trained and unprepared for autism. So let's start with what is autism? Well, oh, I think it's... Oh, Okay, so autism is a communication disorder. It's um, an inability to see the world in the same way that other people would see the world, and it manifests in so many different ways. And children may have different, or, or children and adults with autism will have different ways of coping with the world and communicating with the world. And it's a spectrum disorder. So you will have children who, or young adults, or adults who seem to fit mostly in the world but have a few 
quirks perhaps that um, make them a little bit different. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got uh, people who cannot speak, um, struggle with communication, don't have communication intent, and have a kind of a locked in world almost um, in terms of how they function. Um, and then, of course, there's the movies of Rain Man mm. and Snowflake and all of those that show different iterations of autism. And you see different um, autism now in the new movie that's on Netflix and all those kind of things. And then that becomes people's understanding of autism. I think my understanding of autism and where I am in terms of having a son of 24 and kind of going through this is just that it looks different on every single child that I meet. Um, one person's autism is different to the next and there's no one standard blanket approach, no one size fits all approach and definitely you have to be flexible in how you live your life when you are both with autism and living alongside with someone with autism. Um, yeah, it's not a straight path and it's not, you can't go to a manual and get a guideline to say all autistic people will have these mm -hmm. characteristics and therefore you can do this. Um, I'm a fixer by nature and so it's quite, uh, it was a challenge to me to not be able to find that manual out there that says just do A, B and C and you'll get E and F. It doesn't ever work like that. So, I mean, most parents will say there's no uh, manual for parenting in general. <laughs> and I, I see a colleague of mine who's a psychologist. He's just put out a sort of a webinar series on this is not what I had in mind, yeah. which is where parents have a particular sort of, I suppose, a picture. So we sort of conceive our children in our minds mm -hmm. before we do mm -hmm. in our bodies. And then when the, the child is born and is developing you notice that it's not quite what you had in mind. So what is that journey like when you start realizing that your child is not what you had in mind? So I think one of the hardest things is that it's not clear from day one. So you start to feel resentful of a child with a physical disability or another kind of disability that actually everybody can see from the outset and people are kinder and more embracing from the first, you know, meeting. Whereas you're only going to find out that your child is autistic from two and a half, three, four, five, by which stage, um, you know, you might have a very beautiful looking little boy or little girl who appears to have everything that, you know, five fingers, what, 10 fingers, 10 toes kind of concept in hospital. Um, and then they're not developing like your friend's children or like your other children and mine was my first child so I didn't really have a benchmark of what was supposed to be happening um, I was 30 I hadn't kind of I was not young and dumb I was a little bit older and so I wanted to kind of understand the milestones and everything and here my child wasn't developing along with those milestones and so I was asking you know is it normal not to be talking at this age or whatever and then you know, I would hear, oh, it's boys, they always develop mm. late. So you, you have this idea of they not they don't have any physical imperfections that can alert anyone mm. to being more patient, including you. You're stumbling upon these um, patterns of behavior that don't make sense. You're trying to look and read about it. Um, you might get a doctor involved. They may or may not have any knowledge. There's a lot more knowledge now. Mm 
24 years ago it was not really well known sure. and and so you're not necessarily going to get the answer that you're looking for um, and in fact I found the best people were the therapists okay. occupational therapists speech therapists physical therapists who um, just had a better practical understanding of children and their developmental milestones and those are the people that I got close to initially who were able to support me with what I could do and just feel like they were so excited to see my son at whatever session he was going to. Mm -hmm. So it made this so-called sort of broken, damaged idea that you have that this is not a typical child mm -hmm. and you're struggling to find out where he's going to fit in. They were so embracing and so, you know, they had a practical response. You know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, um, that kind of thing. So the therapists were good for me. Now, I, I think moving from you to Dean, I think the the experience within the, within academia, especially at the moment, is that autism is this kind of ever-expanding definition. It's this continuum and spectrum that seems to increase almost indefinitely. And there's a massive kind of upsurge. And if you, if you look at the, the numbers of diagnoses in previous years versus now, I think it's the only sort of um, social or disability that's actually got a massive incline and what is what is the reason for that do you think Dee? So I think it's a combination of issues I think that uh, partly our understanding is increasing of what autism is and the fact that it is a spectrum so uh, previously we often defined it very narrowly as quite impaired children um, whereas now we know that there are some very the children who you know, um, are incredibly bright um, um, intellectually uh, and can engage okay in society. Um, and they're also on the spectrum. So I think our definition as a, a, a autism being on the spectrum, um, a, a spectrum, I think that has increased the amount of children. But I think it's important to note that it is very much a genetic um, challenge and mm. but but not a genetic challenge where we can say well it's this one chromosome or it's this one gene um, that has caused it in fact it's multitudes expressed in multitudes of ways which is why there's such diversity in the ch in the children that we engage with who are on defined as being on the spectrum so there are some similarities in terms of how they experience their world but um, there are also a number of differences and I think from an academic point of view, um, you know, certainly what I was trying to look at in my research was that we have two very distinct ways of looking currently at autistic children. On the one, on the one side, we have a medical approach, which is very much around um, children who are defined as disabled and who possibly need to be remediated um, and who are different. And we want to try and get them almost, and I'm doing inverted commas around my words here, which you can't see, but <laughs> as normal as possible. Right. So as typical as opposed to atypical. Right. So there's a medical view of, 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 of these children. And then um, there's a social view, which is very much what my world, which is looking at how society disables people because they are different and because they show up differently in the world. And in fact, I was trying to take it to another level, <laughs> well, not necessarily a better level, but what I was trying to understand, because I'd spent so much time engaging with um, autistic children, was looking at how they engage with their world mm -hmm. and trying to develop a spectrum that wasn't looking at um, low versus high or good versus bad, mm -hmm. but rather looking at um, different ways of engaging with the world. So, for instance, one of the spectrums that I looked at was how connected or disconnected they felt from their environment okay. or how, um, um, you know, how 
um, open to the world they were versus how closed to the world because sometimes they do try and shut the world out because the world is quite overwhelming to them. So my focus was looking at a spectrum that looked at how atypical children engaged with the world around them and how they showed up. And that revealed an enormous amount of wonderful insights because suddenly I stopped looking at autism as a disability mm -hmm. and rather at some very unique abilities okay. that they have in terms of how they see the world, how they engage the world with the world and, and how they are, um, which I think we can all learn from. So I th uh, my last question to you, Dee, before Karen uh, steps in, is that what is the value of a diagnosis? You know, I think, I mean, I, I have disabilities, so mm -hmm. I have learning disabilities. Uh, I was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD as a child. I've also now understood that I have massive sensory sensitivities. And I think this is another issue that we need to be aware of on, on World Autism Day is that autism is not one single thing. It's a mm -hmm. multitude of things. And often children are dealing with these multitude of things that almost layer upon each other. So before they can even engage with you in the world, you know, most autistic children have learning disabilities. Most autistic children are ADHD, diagnosed with ADHD as well. Um, most autistic children struggle with other um, sort of mental health issues from anxiety to depression um, to um, OCD. You know, so, so there's, a, there's almost a layering of challenges that they are dealing with. Before they can even say hello to you in the morning, um, they are noted to have much higher allergies, mm. far more sensitivity with, to the environment. Um, and they've got to find a way through all of that and then try and show up as a really nice person, <laughs> which is often challenging for them. So, sure. so I think, um, you know, an understanding that it's not just one particular thing, it's actually a number of things together that they're often trying to navigate their, their way through. And often they don't get to do that on their own terms. They have to do it on other people's terms. Um, so, and that's really challenging for them. And it is why we often see so much trauma um, exp mm. that, that has almost been embedded in these children mm. and in their way of being in the world. Um, I work in child protection, as you noted, mm. and um, I found it really strange how many of the children I worked with who were autistic showed up almost like they'd been abused. Mm. And it wasn't because they were being abused by a particular person or a particular thing. They hadn't been neglected. They'd actually been really well looked after. They hadn't been physically or mentally or socially um, sort of abused. Um, but they actually just found living quite abusive. Mm. Their environment That's was abusive. Their, their, the colors were too, are too bright. The, the noises are too loud. The, the, the environment's too harsh. Their clothing, too scratchy. So mm. everything about their world is, is quite challenging for them. And, and I think an appreciation of that is terribly important. Mm. I think that's so important, as you said, is an appreciation of that is so important. And maybe as typical... And, and I think we all atypical, actually, um, seeing the world through different eyes. And that really is the most important thing. Earlier, Sue spoke about movies and things like Rain Man, which gives us a little bit of insight. And I know there's a new movie out called Music. And Dee, you've been quite critical in, in terms of music and the way in which it portrays an autistic child. What can we be doing better in terms of whether it be on social media or through movies, ensuring that the actual voices of autistic people are heard. 
So I think that you've answered almost your own question. The key is to engage with autistic mm. people. Mm. And the problem with a movie like Music is that it didn't actually get an autistic child to play the main role. Um, it didn't even, the, the, you know, um, uh, the, the producer didn't even, who was Sia, didn't even engage with autistic people. She went online and she watched movies of autistic children. And often the stuff that you see online is showing autistic people in a very bad light. Mm. What you're seeing is them being overwhelmed, them responding to trauma. And, and it's, it's, it's almost like kind of clickbait, you know, you kind of, it's a bit like in child protection, we show children, children who've been abused and who are damaged. And it's, it's not okay because those children have, are multidimensional and as much as they may have times where they have meltdowns and they have shutdowns and they get overwhelmed, they also have times when they're incredibly insightful and incredibly joyful and beautiful human beings who, even if they can't communicate with language, communicate all the time mm -hmm. with their environment. And that's incredibly powerful. So I must be honest, I haven't seen the movie yet. I need to watch it. Um, but I do understand the hurt felt by the autistic community because so often these shows are created mm -hmm. and they are not, autistic people are not consulted on what their lived experience is. So for my research, a big part was actually, I spent most of my time actually with autistic children, not with their parents or their therapists or anyone like that. And I tried to get a, an un, sort of unfettered, uninfluenced, not fated, but uninfluenced view of their lived experience. And it, and it, as much as it's challenging for them, it's also beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's missing from a lot of the content creation around autistic children is that we're not really hearing autistic voices. We're seeing people's views of what autism is about. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the most important things is this question of do you call a person um, who is diagnosed with um, on the autism spectrum as a person with autism or autistic? And without fail, every autistic person I've come across have said, autism is how I define myself. It's part of my identity. So when you say I've got autism and it's separate to me and it's almost like a disease that you want to get rid of, you're actually um, disagreeing with something, part of something that is part of me. And that's very problematic because I actually see my autism as who I am and a way of being in the world. And just like we have uh, people who are deaf and you have deaf societies where everybody signs and that's their means of language, it's the same with autism. They are different and they have their own unique, different way of being in the world. And that's what we need to appreciate. Sue, um, you really have been a pioneer in your own son's life because there weren't, as, as Luke said, it's something that's been diagnosed more and more and the understanding is far better. But when Karen was little, there, there weren't the, the schools available and the resources available to really guide you as a parent. So the one thing that stuck out for me is community. So you said in terms of being very connected to parents of autistic children. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that, and I know it's, it's part of why you're so successful as a fundraiser, is you never take no for an answer. And you've pioneered the way for other autistic children. And that was a, a wonderful woman, Renelle, who we all know very well, Renelle van Bullion, who was the, the principal of the Johannesburg School for Autism. What role did finding a school for Karen play in, to, um, in terms of his own development, but also as a parent, knowing that he was in a place where he was nurtured and developing and growing? Mm -hmm. So I can take it right back to that idea of is a diagnosis important? Mm. It just helps you <coughs> to find a starting point. As you obviously gain experience, you know that that diagnosis is not one-dimensional, that it has to be multi-dimensional. So you've got to therefore try to come with 
a whole lot of approaches to be with your child, manage your child. I don't want to say fix or change um, because exactly what Dee is saying around autism is who he is. Would I recognize him um, if this autism was missing? You know, um, that's just what he is. So I can't take it out of him, but there is this thing that says he's got challenges that make navigating the world really difficult. So we need to find ways, therapy, school, something that allows him to gain some skills or gain some abilities to navigate the world. And he can't advocate for himself. He can't really tell me what he wants. So therefore I had to be that advocate for him. So, yeah, I mean, you have to find initially his gaps or differences between small children, young children, their developmental gaps, uh, their developmental roles or activities are very wide. Mm. So he fitted into a normal school with a facilitator. But then the older he got, the more way behind he was. And it was clear that he needed to be in special needs. And then it was to find the type of special needs that could manage all of his issues. And so it is important to find people like the Ranalf and Billions, the, the principals or the teachers that are going to look at things differently, that are going to anticipate and expect everyone to be different but to understand that there's some common things that everyone has to get right. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it is. it was important to try and find those schools. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't one for older kids, teenagers, um, when we were looking. And so we had, through social media and making connections, found a little group of people that were all kind of in the same age bracket as our son. And we got together for a year before they were going to be um, finishing at their primary school or the school that they were at to say what are we going to do? There has to be something more. Um, at that stage, there was only the school in Pretoria and that wasn't an option. Mm. So you just, you absolutely have to find people that have the same kind of journey as you. Um, and we haven't even spoken about it, but that was really, really valuable for all our, all the siblings of the children mm. of our children, just to be able to be in a space where everyone's got a bit of a strange brother or sister and the parents are fine and the siblings are fine and these kids are all okay and then we were able to in that kind of collective spirit decide on what we wanted for our children when they were um, going to be in their teens and then we went out and looked for it and in fact Sacred Heart School offered us space at the same time that we met um, I think we went to Sacred Heart in the morning and we went to see Renelle at about lunchtime and it was literally just the idea that the CMI building was more classroom-like as opposed to Sacred Heart offering a house. Um, none of us really knew what we were getting into. Not Sacred Heart, not CMI, not <laughs> Renell, because she just had younger children at that stage. We also hadn't done this ourselves. But, you, you know, you just have to keep inquiring. You keep having to stay within the community. And I'm a firm believer that you don't have to really pioneer, that usually there's someone that's done something before. You mm -hmm. just have to find them, talk to them about the experience and, you know, adapt it to yours. Okay, so in, in concluding the discussion, I mean, we can go on about siblings and experience of parents and all kinds of things. But the thing I've found most sort of interesting, I suppose, in my work with both UCU and UD is that uh, we were asked to do some kind of physical activity program for children with autism. So we started the boxing program and I just absolutely love it. In fact, where I've come from today. And I have two things I just want to land at the end is 
There was a, a thing at a particular um, shopping center where they had an autism day where they dimmed the lights and they played soft music and they sort of cleared people out and then the children could come to a particular toy shop and shop. I wasn't in favor of that because the world is not adjusting itself to you. Whereas with the boxing program, what we do is, you know, you talk about the um, spectrum of disorders, sort of like auditory defensive and tactile defensive and et cetera, et cetera. And my assumption is you can do everything, okay, if facilitated correctly, you have to prove me wrong, rather than adjusting the world to the child with autism. Is that a fair comment by me? I think it's, I think it's probably a combination of both. So I think what's amazing about your program, the Autism Boxing Program, is that it provides the children with a space where they can really start to establish their bodily boundaries. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, um, in all my research, I think was probably my biggest finding, was that children on the spectrum really struggle with trying to figure out where do I finish and the world begin. Okay. And so what they tend to feel like is, especially when they're feeling upset or they're having a particularly traumatic day, they feel like they're spilling out into the world. And they also feel like the world is kind of invading them. So when they are, uh, you try and give them a hug to console them and they don't want you to touch them, it's not that they don't want that comfort, but it, it almost feels like you might melt right into them. And that's quite a terrifying concept. I mean, imagine not knowing where your skin finishes and the mm. world begins. And so I think that what I've observed with, with children on the spectrum is that they tend to struggle with these bodily boundaries and they struggle with them at a physical level, an emotional level, a social level, um, an intellectual level, that there's this fluidity between them and the world. They're almost part of the world. And uh, in, in certain environments can be quite invasive. And I mean, I worked with lots of kids who had almost a little... They, they almost had a bag of ki like a kit of parts where they went into a, a shopping mall and they would have earphones that they could put on. They would have uh, glasses that they could put on. They sometimes even carried a weighted blanket with them that they could wrap around themselves and manage their own sensory space. Um, and so, yes, I think we can armor them up to engage with the world really positively and be appreciative of, of that. Mm. But I think that gestures, and, and, and I also think that there's space for environments where they can test those boundaries mm. and figure out where do I finish and where does the world begin, mm. which is why the boxing environment, they literally are banging into things and able to say, okay, I see where this boxing bag is and I see where I am and I can, I can actually get back into my body and understand that. So I think those two spaces are wonderful. And I also think, though, that grand gestures where we go out to atypical children and say, come into our space and we'll adjust for you. Mm. It doesn't have to be all the time, but I think so often they ex they're expected to adjust to us. Mm. Um, I think that those grand gestures are really appreciated, especially at this time when we're recognizing autism. Mm. So, so having those opportunities to go into spaces and for people to say, you're special. We know you're special and we appreciate that specialness. And therefore, we're, pre we're prepared to adapt to you rather than you always having to adapt to us. Mm. So and, yeah, from a parent's point of view, to be able to not have to worry about do they fit into the, the typical world, but mm. actually have something that's for the day, for that moment. It's designed for your child. It's very relaxing. Mm. It's very freeing. It means you, you can just go. Um, and you know you don't have to perform and that's 
quite nice to have that every now and then. Well, thanks for answering my question, Sue, because that's exactly what I was going to ask. I think working at the CMI building has been incredibly educational for me. I had had no real previous experience with children with autism. And so to experience the children and the different ways in which they do things has been liberating. I never knew that more boys suffer from autism than girls. I mean, that was... I, I didn't know that. Yes, Dee, sorry. Sorry, just to say that, I think what's really interesting is is that boys and girls have different ways of experiencing their world. And I think there is this assumption that more boys have it than girls. But I often think we don't appreciate how autism shows up in girls. Mm. So as much as it's much more obvious <coughs> in boys because boys are expected to be a particular way and we know what that way looks like. So when they're a bit more boisterous or a bit too boisterous or a bit too energetic or a bit too quiet and so on we say oh this is this is different but girls when they're quiet and compliant we kind of say yay it's a nice quiet girl <laughs> but actually which none of us are exactly <laughs> no but 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 some girls really are struggling um because their way of showing up as autistic is actually just to be very quiet and to not complain mm -hmm. um and i think you know this whole story of um, autistic children experience trauma quite a lot and we know that there are lots of responses to trauma we know the typical ones of fight and flight um, there's also more that I learned when I worked with Luke in his boxing class which was called freeze and flop where the children literally would freeze or they would literally flop on the ground and fall asleep and be a bit comatose and that was their response to sort of to trauma but the the last one, and I think we don't know enough about this one, is called fawn. It's the last F in the in all of them. So you have fight, flight, freeze, flop, and then you have fawn. And fawn is about being completely compliant because you've actually given up your way of being in the world because everybody said it's wrong. And so what you tend to do is you just say yes to everything. Even if you feel unsafe, even if you feel stressed about it, you just go yes and you do what you're told to do because you actually don't feel like you can advocate for yourself anymore. And for me, it's the most, it's the really the saddest one because mm. they've got to a point where they've literally given up on who they are and they're prepared to just be who you need them to be. Um, so, I mean, I know that the stats definitely say more boys than girls. And I guess I'm, as a researcher, saying I don't think we understand this enough. And it's another area that you've identified mm -hmm. that we need to explore mm -hmm. further because I think there are a lot of girls who fawn, um, who are on the spectrum and whose, whose, whose needs are not being fulfilled because they just kind of slip under the mm -hmm. radar. Well, Dee and Sue and Luke, thank you for teaching me so much about autism. I learn every day and I'm, I'm very, very grateful. So thank you for being so generous with your, your wisdom and your lived experiences. Yeah, and thanks from me as well, because I think uh, Sue's response about the boxing versus, you know, changing the whole environment at a shopping center sort of also talks to the difference between the fatherly or the paternal function response versus the maternal function with the father saying, go out into the world, and the mother saying, no, no, we'll change the world for you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so thank you very much for that, because I think it's all about the balance and about yeah. finding ways to be in the world. Be aware that people who are atypical are just like us. I see myself as atypical as well. So we all have our own ways of being in the world, and it's about how we host people in our environments. That, for me, is the most important. So thank you all.